Everybody, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, about a year ago, Liam um, participated in a conference in Cambridge where we uh, created this tool called Reframing Education uh, about beliefs and practice in schools, which is available online. So it's nice to, uh, uh, to, to uh, come over to your neck of the woods and the world of the dark blues. Um, I thought that uh, I was trying to think of an appropriate joke um, that suited a faculty of education. And this is the best I could come up with, so forgive me. Um, and this is a story, of course, as you know, um, the term rabbi means my teacher. Um, and this is a story about a rabbi and his uh, driver uh, in the late 18th century who would go from village to village and go into the synagogue, uh, be asked some really difficult questions about the Talmud or Jewish scriptures, um, answer them. Um, the driver would be at the back of the synagogue and the rabbi would always get presents from the community and they ignored the driver. Every place they went to, they ignored the driver. And one day the driver said, look, why don't we swap clothes? Let me pretend to be the rabbi and you the driver and they give me the presents. And the rabbi said, well, you won't be able to answer the questions. He said, trust me, I will. So on the way to the next village, they exchanged clothes and the rabbi became the driver, the driver became the rabbi and they went to the synagogue. And they brought the driver into the front of the synagogue and they opened the Talmud and they asked a really difficult question. Meanwhile, the rabbi who was dressed at the driver, as the driver was at the back of the room thinking, ah, he's going to get his now. And the driver looked at the Talmud, looked at the community, he said, huh, you think that's a difficult question? Even my driver knows the answer. Come up here and answer the question. <laughs> so uh, that's the best I could do. So... Convened by the Wolf Institute in 2013, I hope you, you've all got a copy, um, the Commission for Religion and Belief published a 100-page report with 37 recommendations two years later in December 2015. It was the first systematic exa examination of this subject in modern times. The first one and the culmination of a two-year project with 20 eminent commissioners chaired by Lady Butler Sloss. We used the subtitle, Community, Diversity and the Common Good, to stimulate a national debate about the place of religion and belief. And this evening, what I'd like to do is reflect on the report's context and vision, and particularly the education section of the report, which I think will be of most interest to you. Not to mention the vigorous responses from faith communities and secular groups with some recommendations broadly welcomed, such as calling for a wholesale revision of the RE curriculum and for a dramatic improvement in religion and belief literacy. Other recommendations, particularly on faith schools, were heavily criticised, notably by the Roman Catholic Church, Church House, which is the bureaucracy of the Church of England, the civil service, uh, and the office of the chief rabbi. Um, in January 2016, the government formally welcomed the report of this commission and I'd be interested in our discussion after this talk on your views uh, of its recommendations. Now the launch itself sparked a massive public debate about the role of religion and belief in British public life which fulfilled the first recommendation which was to launch a national conversation. We had 60 major newspaper articles, 2 million tweets, and I was personally handed by the Daily Mail online. Now, the Wolf Institute itself um, examines relations between Jews, Christians, and Muslims uh, in a, a, an attempt to enhance 
our understanding of key concepts of public life, that is community, identity, mutual respect, personal responsibility and social solidarity. As an aside, I don't know if anyone's been listening to the Wreath Lectures, but I heartily recommend them. 2016 Wreath Lectures going on at the moment under the theme Mistaken Identities. Now the Commission was chaired, as I say, by Lady Butler Sloss um, and began its work with 20 Commissioners, there's me looking a little bit younger, as Vice Chair, um, with four Patrons and a Secretariat. I won't list all of the Commissioners, you can see them there. But I would like to highlight the fact that the Commissioners included the Chief Executive of the British Humanist Association, Andrew Copson, Tariq Modud, Professor at Bristol University, uh, Jagbir Jyoti Johal, a Sikh representative from Birmingham University, um, and a number of uh, dark blue representatives from local. Uh, Rabbi Norman Solomon, who may be familiar to some of you, the former Bishop of Oxford, Lord Harris, and so on. Now, you can imagine from a group like that that not everybody agreed about every recommendation. Uh, with a diverse group and some loud voices, and I won't mention who, there were disagreements and there was dissent. And at every point along the way, we had to have a substantial and difficult dialogue, but were motivated by the desire to promote a vision, or our vision, for British society. So the Commission itself um, sought to consider the place and role of religion and belief in contemporary Britain and the significance of emerging trends and identity. Examine how ideas of Britishness and national identity may be inclusive of a range of religions and belief and may in turn influence people's self-understanding. Explore how shared understandings of the common good may contribute to greater levels of mutual trust and collective action and to a more harmonious society. And fourthly, make recommendations for public life and policy. So with these goals in mind, we held six weekend meetings, spoke to experts on the six themes in the report, vision, education, media, dialogue, social action and the law, had a public consultation with over 250 responses from across the UK, met with senior religious leaders, had six national hearings across the four nations of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland, um, and met what we might call hard-to-reach communities. That, by that I mean Diabundi, uh, Muslims in Bradford, Khalasani, Sikhs in Gravesend, uh, Haredi Jews in Stamford Hill. So, what did we find out? Well, first of all, in terms of emerging trends, you can see here, as you probably know, um, a summary of religious affiliation measured by the Office for National Statistics comparing 2011 census with 2001. Note the rise of those not affiliating with the religion. Note the decline of Christian affiliation and the rise of affiliation of other religions. Now some, and you can see basically 71% in 2001 who affiliate with Christianity down to 59% in 2011. A staggering decline and at the same time an almost doubling of those who do not associate with any religion from 14% in 2001 to 25% in 2011. Um, we also looked at other surveys, the British Social Attitude Survey, comparing 1983 to 2014, and here you see the statistics there. Note again the rise of those not affiliating with a religion, the decline of uh, all Christian Christian, major Christian denominations, especially the Anglican Church, 
um, and the rise of affiliation with other religions. Now, they're different because different questions were asked, but the point is this. One, a dramatic increase in this country of people with non-religious beliefs and identities. So almost half the UK population today describes itself as non-religious, almost half, compared with an eighth in England and a third in Scotland in 2001. Point two, a decline in Christian affiliation, belief and practice. 30 years ago, two-thirds of the population of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland identified as Christian. Today that figure is four in ten. Two-thirds to four in ten. And at the same time, there has been a shift away from the mainstream denominations of the church and a growth in evangelical and Pentecostal churches. So, for example, between 2005 and 2012, 700 new churches were created in London from the black Christian communities. Astonishing growth. So that means the face of Christianity has changed in this country. And point number three, the increased religious diversity of this country. 50 years ago Judaism was the major Christian, non-Christian minority numbering approximately one in 150 and today Jews are fourth after Muslims, Hindus and Sikhs in terms of their size and minority faiths have changed from one in 150 to about one in ten, have a younger age profile and are growing faster than Christians. So that is the landscape as we have it and the trend as we see it. So what about the vision? One of the respondents to our national conversation said, and I quote, We are standing at a crossroads. What kind of society do we want? Will we be tribal and separate from one another or an integrated, inclusive and welcoming society? Another respondent said, the crucial questions facing religions in society today are not points of detail, but manners of fundamental attitude. In particular, whether Britain is a country which is alert to how it came to be, the place it is, and the role of faith in getting us to this point. So our starting point is the vision of a national narrative in which all can feel part we show that religion has always been part of our national story and we say that informing our national identities, and I quote, religion and belief will play a part in nurturing these, as they have in the past, even though the exact form this will take cannot yet be discerned. So this report is unusual in recognising the role, for example, of a multi-faith empire as part of our history, and honest in recognising that religion has been part of our story in harmful ways as well as positive ones. And this is perhaps the context, the criticism that we received and I personally received from the Cardinal, the Chief Rabbi and one or two others. So in sum, the Commission envisions that all people feel part of an ongoing national story. It's really important that we are part of this national narrative, that all are treated with equal respect and concern by the law, the state and public authorities, that all know that their culture, religion and beliefs are embraced as part of the continuing process of mutual enrichment and that their contributions to the common good consist, sorry, their contributions uh, contribute to the texture of the nation's common life. All are free to express their beliefs and practice a religion, providing that they do not constrict the rights and freedoms of others, are confident 
in helping to shape public policy and feel challenged to respond to the many manifest ills in wider society and contribute to the common good. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, the Commission found that what it means to be British is not fixed. And whilst we did not welcome the discussion about British values instigated by the former Prime Minister David Cameron, we did feel a discussion about shared values would be very helpful. Perhaps its benefit can be seen today in the painful process of the UK trying to work out its relationship or ships with the EU, as well as to how we're handling or not handling the refugee crisis. And in some ways, in a matter of 11 months since the report was released, much has changed, and yet I'll be honest with you, very little has changed. In contemporary Western society, it's sometimes claimed that there is no shared understanding of the common good. Rather, each individual will have their own individual and distinct ideas about what this means and what it means for them. What is shared at a basic level is merely the rule of law. And as long as people follow it, each individual should be free to make their own choices about the nature of the good life. For many, this is the bare essence and the furthest extent of the common good. Yet we suggest in this report, largely influenced by the Catholic doctrine on this subject, that the common good means much more. It recognises that human beings are categorised by interdependence and that a shared social life confers on individual civic responsibilities towards each other as much as personal rights. This means that the common good consists of values which encourage a sense of solidarity with others, which strengthen a sense of shared responsibility, accountability, and lead people to seek the good of the whole and not of one interest group. And this, we suggest, is fundamental to a society's health. So we recommended that faith leaders and other leaders initiate discussions on the values, political and personal, they have in common with each other. We recommend that a national conversation should take place to create a shared understanding of the, pub of the fundamental values and equal respect underlying public life. Equal respect does not just mean toleration in the sense of permitting, rather it involves the welcoming of difference and that it is essential that we hope and seek that all society are involved. To recognise and welcome difference requires that one knows something about the religious other. And this requires religion and belief literacy, which is a central theme that runs through the report. Literacy is often talked about in schools regarding the implementation of religious education. But we suggest that religion and belief literacy be taken seriously at all levels of society. And that there are six major facets of religion and belief literacy. And these are as follows. One that major religious and philosophical traditions and worldviews of humankind have many similarities, overlaps and commonalities. We start with the overlap and the commonality. Second, that there are significant differences within each religious tradition. No tradition is monolithic. None is unchanging. When you come across the term, the, the definite article, the, when you hear and you, someone say the Muslims, the Jews, the gays, that you realise the stereotype that's likely to follow. So no tradition, no culture is unchanging. None exists independently of specific cultural, historical and political contexts. Thirdly, belonging or not belonging to a religion is often more to do with heritage and a sense of identity than with holding certain beliefs or engaging in certain practices. 
And religion has three main dimensions that sometimes overlap. Affiliation, practice and doctrine. Five, the relationship between what someone believes and what they actually do is often difficult to unpack. What someone believes and what they do is difficult to unpack. And finally, it is possible to appreciate religious art, architecture stories, poetry, music, theatre and so on without necessarily sharing the beliefs which they express or they assume. In our view, British society should be based on the principles of the common good, literacy and the reflection of customs and ceremonies to reflect the vibrant and varied nature of British life today. The thrust of the report as a whole is that the national, is that the national narrative in which religion has been such a major part has changed, is changing, will change further, but at no point is there any attempt to write out that religious legacy. We question, for example, the number of Anglican bishops in the House of Lords. Does anybody know how many there are? This is how I check that you're awake. Yes, you're nodding. 26. 26. Excellent. Excellent. Very rarely is that question answered right, so well done, sir. So the question is, why do we have 26 Anglican bishops in the House of Lords? No Roman Catholic representatives, no representatives from other faiths. We question that. I have to, actually, this is being recorded, isn't it? So I've got to be careful what I say. But I will share one thing because no one else will tell the story, I'm sure. We made a recommendation about the royal oath for the next monarch. Uh, we recommended that the oath should be a multi-faith oath. And in my nightmares before the report was published, that's what I expected to be attacked on. And it wasn't mentioned once in the media. It's interesting what is picked up and what is not. Anyway, the story we suggest is one of incremental change, of gradual evolution towards a more pluralist society, but one in which both Christianity and the Church of England have a key role to play. A good example is that the discussion of civic is, is the discussion of civic events and symbols, which I'll touch on in a moment, and the speech of the Queen about the role of the Church of England at Lambeth, very, very, very much underreported in 2012. Civic events first. Civic events and the symbols associated with them are an important factor in expressing and building up a sense of belonging together. Such events are rightly secular, mainly. And for others, history has bequeathed the churches a leading role in this. So in recent years, they have increasingly sought to use this historic legacy in an inclusive manner. Leaders of other faiths have had a role in civic services. For example, there is a Commonwealth Observance Service at Westminster Abbey each year with readings from a range of different scriptures. Major state occasions, such as the funeral of Princess Diana, and the, in the summer uh, of 2015, of the 10th anniversary of 7-7 car bomb, uh, the bombings, the 7-7 took place in Christian buildings and with much non-Christian religious symbolism. Now, in the speech by the, Her Majesty the Queen at Lambeth Palace in 2012, this is what she said about the role of the Church of England. I think it's fascinating. The role of the Church is not to defend Anglicanism to the exclusion of other religions. I don't need to read it all. Just take a moment to read it. Now this is quite a different role than you might have assumed. That there's a sort of umbrella dimension to the role. And the Queen, of course, is the head of the Church of England and the Church of Scotland as well. So part of the establishment is to help integrate 
non-Christian perspectives and wisdom into British society enable them to have their voice heard in the public sphere. I suppose in a, an, a similar way, Christian chaplains in the hospitals and the military universities prisons have frequently acted as a broker and facilitator in the widening of chaplaincy arrangements for adherents of other faiths. But let me move on to the chapter on education because this is probably the one that interests you most of all. Education is perhaps at the core of our report. We make specific recommendations about religious education, collective worship, and schools with a religious character, often called faith schools. More fundamentally, our emphasis on the need of a much greater religion and belief literacy impacts on education at all levels. Akhil Ahmed, who heads the BBC religion and ethics team, told us in a private meeting that the British public has such a poor religious literacy that they would be, ba they would be baffled by Monty Python's Life of Brian because they wouldn't understand the biblical references. But as some of you are, or will be, or um, have been RE teachers, you especially will know that religious and belief literacy cannot just be about knowing greater content about what different religious groups believe and do. We need to understand something of the complex nature or natures of religions and beliefs, the very varied roles they can play in motivating action, both good and bad, awareness of the wider context of social divisions and power structures which, structures which may shape them an appreciation of the complexity and fluidity of the very categories of the terms religion and belief. So we make recommendations for the training and education of certain professional groups, such as politicians, policymakers, judges and the police and so on, and of the wider public as a whole. And turning to schools, we build on a large amount of work done in recent years addressing the place of religion and belief in schools, including the two Ofsted reports published in 2010 and 2013, the report by Charles Clark and Linda Woodhead published in 2015, and the report of the Faith and Civil Society Unit at Goldsmiths College in London. So, religious education. Many locally agreed syllabi are providing inadequate content that is failing to reflect sufficiently the realities of religion and belief in the UK. Many present a sanitised or idealised form of religion, fail to grapple with the deeper complexities about the nature of religion and belief, and many also fail to include non-religious worldviews, and as you probably know, a judicial review found this to be unlawful. In Northern Ireland there are further issues. 7% of schools in Northern Ireland are integrated, only 7%. RE is largely Christian in character, which does not serve well for the small but growing numbers of children from other religion and belief backgrounds. And in state-funded Catholic schools, RE is denominational in nature with an emphasis on, being on, emphasis on faith formation. So we recommend that governments across the governments across the four nations of the UK should introduce a statutory entitlement for all schools within the state system for a subject dealing with religious and non-religious worldviews. They should establish content and learning objectives that can be flexibly applied by teachers 
allowing the minimum requirements, requirements to be built on differently by different schools. The content should be broad and inclusive in a way that reflects the diversity of religion and belief in the UK, and the subject should have the same status as other humanities subjects, and name changes may be required to reflect the inclusion of non-religious worldviews. So in the four nations of the UK, this would require different measures. In England, the RE Council's curriculum framework should be made statutory as part of the national curriculum. And the government should consider making RE a humanities subject within the English baccalaureate. In Wales, a new subject with content similar to that of the uh, religious uh, RE Council's framework for England should be developed and applied to religious as well as community schools. And in Northern Ireland, RE should be broadened to include more religions and non-religious worldviews on the same basis as religions. In all state-funded schools, it should be given an explicitly educational rather than confessional focus. And similarly, in Scotland, the current Curriculum for Excellence area of religious and moral education should be applied to denominational as well as non-denominational schools. As soon as the Commission published its report with those recommendations, the RE Council of England and Wales announced a review of the RE curricula. And this is being undertaken in conversation with the Department of Education. Uh, and there are a number of other initiatives at the moment. Charles Clark and Linda Woodhead doing another review. And the Dean of Westminster is chairing another group. And I mention it because they are presently calling for contributions. So if you want to make a contribution to the new Commission on Religious Education, you still have time to do so. Um, and uh, I can give you the information. And I think they would welcome your contribution. That's being chaired by the Dean of Westminster. So that's the first point the review of religious uh, education, its curriculum. The second is training for RE teachers needs to be overhauled. In the 2013 report of the APPG on religious education, it was found that out of the primary school teachers it surveyed, only 19 teachers said they received more than 11 hours of training devoted to religious education. Only 19 teachers said they received more than 11 hours. So clearly there are serious deficiencies in the training of teachers about religion and belief. And this leads to a lack of confidence, not to mention anxiety, when teaching in schools. So we recommended that in all teacher education, attention should be given to religion and belief that is of a similar level to the training that is given to reading and maths and so on, so that every primary class teacher feels more competent, more confident in this area, so that all teachers uh, in primary, secondary and further education colleges have a, gen a general awareness of the relevant sensitivities. Thirdly, we recommended the repeal uh, of collective worship or religious observance in schools. Many schools anyway are ignoring the statutory requirement and there is widespread support for an alternative. Governments should issue new guidelines building on the current best praxis, practice and we recommended the Times of Reflection which is a collaboration by the Church of Scotland and the Humanist Society of Scotland for inclusivist assemblies. And we suggest that these should draw upon a range of sources that are appropriate for pupils and staff of all religions and beliefs and that will contribute to their spiritual, moral, social and cultural development. In addition, however, governments should expect state-funded schools to be open to the provision of religion or belief-specific teaching and worship on school premises outside of the timetable for those who request it. 
Fourth, faith schools. The Commission believes that the admission policies that involve selection on the grounds of religion increase segregation based on religion, but also in some cases ethnicity and social economic background. There are increasing numbers of parents in England who do not want to send their children to a religious school, but whose only choice of a state school locally is a religious one. And this can incentivize parents to be insincere about their religious affiliation and practice in order to get their child into the school. We recognize that public opinion is divided on this issue, and within the Commission itself there were different perspectives. But overall, we recommended that responsible bodies should recognize the negative practical consequences of selection by religion in schools, and that most religious schools can further their aims without selecting on grounds of religion in their admission and employment practices, and so they should take measures to reduce such selections. Essentially, we're recommending that there shouldn't be a denominal faith school with 100% of the same type of student. That if there's a Jewish school, there should be non-Jewish pupils. If there's a Church of England school, there should be non-Anglican pupils, and so on. And it was this recommendation that generated the most controversy and the most vehement criticism from the Roman Catholic hierarchy, from Church House and the Chief Rabbi's Office. Actually, interestingly enough, the letter of complaint I received from the Chief Rabbi and the Cardinal was very, very similar in content. So clearly, they had got together to draft this letter. And I thought, well, that's Jewish-Christian dialogue in action. <laughs> but even so, it was interesting that it was that topic that generated the most um, controversy. And, of course, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has rejected this recommendation about faith schools. But I sense that it's a subject that still has some way to run. The Catholic Educational Service, one of our biggest critics of this recommendation on faith schools, has agreed to the Wolf Institute's request to host a joint symposium early next year to discuss what makes a faith school open, welcome and diverse in pluralist Britain. And I'll be interested to hear what you think makes a faith school open, welcome and diverse. Fifth, there are concerns about inadequate inspection in some schools or in some subjects, including in some faith schools and in RE in some parts of the country. This is a particular problem in Northern Ireland, but not only in Northern Ireland. We recommend that state inspectorates be concerned with every aspect of life of faith schools, including the religious elements, currently inspected by denominational authorities. Sixth, it was clear in our consultation that there are concerns about the freedom to debate controversial issues, both in schools and, of course, in universities, including your own. Such concerns revolved around, in particular, the implications of the Counterterrorism and Security Act for educational settings. We emphasise that free debate should be possible without fear of students being labelled as extremists or attracting the attention of the security services. That's something we might have touched on earlier. To that end, the Commission recommends the government should clarify and emphasise that in all phases of the uh, education sector, respectful and thoughtful discussion of contrasting opinions and worldviews is essential. It is necessary for all staff to have skills in the handling of sensitive and controversial topics. It sounds obvious, right? But if we, feel if we feel encumbered not to provide that setting, then how can we expect our students and our graduates to be able to converse 
and tackle difficult subjects. Likewise, we recommended the government should speak to people that it might disagree with and not be scared to do so. And finally, reflecting on the fact that our report is concerned with educating the public as a whole and in promoting religious and belief literacy, the Commission recommended that the EHRC or a similar body should produce best practice guidelines on matters of religion and belief in the initial training and continuing professional development of staff employed in higher education and in professions such as law, medicine, nursing and social work. In other words, we've got to increase the levels of religion and belief literacy throughout society. And it's encouraging to see a number of initiatives in the commercial sector and we expect this to grow in other sectors as well. Wolf Institute, for example, works with the Foreign Office on religion and belief training, with hospitals and the hospice movement around the UK. To summarise, how religions and beliefs intersect with the education systems across the UK, primary, secondary, tertiary and lifelong learning, could easily be the focus of an entire commission in its own right. And it's clear from the evidence we have seen and the many people we've spoken to that in some areas, Substantial changes are needed to bring policies and practices within the field of education into line with the changing landscape of religion and belief. And our hope, and I have to say our expectation, is that the government, schools and funding bodies will read them closely and give them serious consideration. Some are already being put into practice. Learning to understand and live with our differences is the recurring theme throughout this report. Whether or not we might want to, we cannot ignore or escape the differences that our religion and belief systems make to ours and other people's sense of personal identity, narrative and connectivity to others and indeed isolation. Furthermore, we recognise the in that inescapable religious and sorry, furthermore, we recognise that inescapable religious and belief identities can serve as forces for good but also for ill. And so the challenge for all of us is to create an environment in which the increasingly diverse society is, in which we live is far from becoming the root of instability and mistrust, becomes enriching and nourishing for us all as we learn to live with and I hope celebrate our differences. Thank you. <laughs>